everyone, this is Tumble Vision 86. We've been doing 86 shows, if you can believe it. This is your host, Heather Gold. This week, we're with also Kevin Marks. Kevin? Hi there. <laughs> You've managed to get into your own office? I have past to get, all I the have, obstacles? I, well, um, Occupy San Francisco is outside my office, um, and they evicted a bunch of people from Market Street this week, and there's a bunch of crash barriers and, and policemen outside, so it took me a bit longer to get to the office than usual. Right, you have to get into the institution to talk about breaking the institution. <laughs> Slowed down by the institution interferers outside. <laughs> so I'm talking to you from upstairs, the Helen Gardner Playhouse Theatre at the University of Toronto, where there's performance art conversation. I had to just leave downstairs with um, five performance artists, including Heather Castle, who's... Um, who played Lady Gaga's girlfriend in Telephone, who did a really interesting piece yesterday uh, at this thing I was at, and uh, at a bathhouse. And and Deb is not with us this week. She is, it's 3 a.m. in Tel Aviv, so that's why we're not with her. And our guest this week, you are all fortunate to have uh, as our guest this week, is our we, Kestrin Pantera Grubb. Or Kestrin, just Kestrin Pantera? Kestrin Pantera. Hi. It's super amazing, which we'll tell you more about in a minute. But first, we explain what the fuck is this show about? Tumblevision. Tumbling this weird word. Tumblevision is um, is a leading uh, kind of network culture podcast. Certainly, I think the only X-rated business podcast. But we're a human sect, and we have a salon-style show every week where we talk with some of the most interesting people in the networked world who are really making network experiences work uh, and putting really human experience in the center of technology, culture, and business. And uh, tumbling was this weird word. Well, you know, we needed a new word to describe what it is to make things happen in a more networked environment. What is What do you call that? Because we're used to words like leadership or management, but those things usually refer to something top-down and very... Hierarchical. So in a non-hierarchical world, how do you make things happen? You tumble. Oh, so interesting in a time of intense Occupy Wall Street activism where everyone's going, we don't know what to do. And there's no leaders. Like we've been now 86 episodes of talking about no leaders. So uh, yay, world, you're coming to meet us where we've been for a long, <laughs> for a while. Uh, and Kestrin, uh, who's joining us, a tumble, I'll just explain the word tumble. It's an old Yiddish word. It, it means really to catalyze people to action or make noise. And tumblers and the Catskills, it's an even older. I gathered. It sounded like you were saying that tumbling was about getting people to um, interact okay, in a dynamic way. <laughs> well done, Kester Pantera, with the definition of tumbling. <laughs> Thank you. It is. And in fact, is one of the things Kestrin is excellent at. Uh, Kestrin is an amazing combination of things as an artist she's a, a an incredible cellist and performer and actor and singer and helps run and really tumble something called the rvip lounge which is a super cool uh, karaoke and wheels experience that goes around all kinds of conferences it's been at ted and TechCrunch and all these other places and they just kind of scoop people up and they tweet to let everybody know where they are it's it, it sort of became the huge hit of South by South West. I can't remember how many years ago. Um, and a large part of the experience of what it is to do this kind of mobile karaoke is about the social experience of how you're finding it and how you're finding other people. And Kestrin's sort of the ninja of that. So we'll be talking with her about all of this stuff. I want to talk about performance, too. Um, tonight, we usually, when we open the show, Kestrin, I'd like to talk first real quickly about stuff that's happened this week. And it seems unavoidable to talk about 
Occupy Wall Street, which seems in the last 24 hours to have hit a whole new place. Uh, there, my Twitter feed certainly is full of um, the police attacking people at different Occupy locations, whether it's Portland or Oakland or New York, where they're being locked out of Zuccotti Park and books are being dumped. Um, and I'm sure in other locations as well. I mean, you just went through Occupy San Francisco, so it sounds like, Kevin, at this point, Occupy San Francisco is a, is some kind of substantial presence because not very yes. long ago when we first talked about it, there weren't a whole lot of people there. No, it's, 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 it's pretty big um, now. They, they, um, they spread out Market Street, and the people on Market Street have been evicted, but the people in the square outside the ferry building are still there, and uh, you can probably hear them drumming in the background. Huh, drumming. Can't have them. And how many people do you think are there? Um, it's hard to know because there's, there's lots of tents, but it's there's there's um, probably at least a couple of hundred, maybe more. I think it, it fluctuates during the day. It's it's not on the scale of the procession in New York at the moment, but there's there's definitely a, a, a core of people there, and I think they're about to start the evening meeting. Okay, well that's interesting. Have you been, have you been through one of the meetings? No, I haven't been to them now. I've only been watching those on, on video. There's a bit of a presence in Los Angeles as well. Um, we have a lot of friends who are kind of heavily involved. We drove the RV around but um, and, and stopped there briefly. I think we sang Songs of Freedom by Bob Marley to them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we, I'm, not, um, I'm not there, obviously. I'm not there right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the big thing going on at the moment is the huge march in New York, right? That's that's the thing that I'm seeing most information about, where they've, they've basically taken over the whole of the Brooklyn Bridge after being broken up last um, two nights ago. Oh, again? Oh, wow. Let me try and find that. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of the... Um... The, well, one of the most recent things I saw was a photograph of someone who had been assaulted by a policeman um, in New York, and it was an article about Bloomberg attempting to suppress the press and asking them to not show those pictures that they showed. My information. <laughs> yeah, that's my impression of what's gone on this week as well. It's hard to confirm what's fact and, and what isn't. I also saw a lot of ideas that the Department of Homeland Security was somehow involved in coordinating all of these attempts to go at all the occupies at once. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, I haven't so, heard any of those rumors yet, but I wouldn't... Sounds like a valid rumor or non-rumor. <laughs> there was, right. there was it, suspicious simultaneity, yes. But part of what happens when something... Well, I remember when, you know, 9-11 happened, and uh, it happened in two physical locations. I immediately assumed it could happen where I was. You know that it was going to happen in lots of places, and one of the things when something is networked like this and it happens in multiple places, uh, what ends up happening is it takes more effort to try. If you're trying to intervene like this, I mean, I, th- I think it costs a lot. I mean, I think I read that the bill for police overtime in New York alone has been eight million dollars to go after Occupy. Wow. So it's not very many people, right? I mean, if you think about the number of people who have been out there, I mean, that was part of what really struck me about. 9-11, I don't mean to associate these things together as though one is trying to be terrorist at all. Of course, Occupy isn't. But um, just that if you're doing something in a more networked way, you can have a much bigger impact with your people. Yeah. So that's all I mean to say. 
One of the things I noticed in Spain, there was the Spanish Revolution um, in Madrid and Barcelona, all over the country when we were there. And um, we would go visit the revolution at the time. And it was it was it was more like Burning Man than an actual revolution. I mean, people were giving out food and it ended up being, you know, almost perfectly replicated in New York. And the Occupy movement really speaks to that. I haven't actually heard that many people talk about it because it seemed like I saw the Occupy movement happen in Spain like eight months ago this year. Um, It seemed like people took a lot of that sort of peaceful information with them. And I'm imagining if I were an authority, you know, I would probably be scared. And, um, you know, it's it's a really, like, tricky thing. I I obviously support, you know, I'm I'm more on the Occupy lines ideologically, but uh, it's, it's scary to people who are in charge. Like, what do you do with all these people outside? And I guess you listen to them. <laughs> do, you really, do you really think they feel scared? I mean, I don't know if they feel scared yet. Although I would think if they're starting to crack down this hard, they must be threatened on some level. I'm or they sure wouldn't be trying to shut are. it down like this. Oh yeah. I mean, if Occupy felt like Burning Man to me as well. I mean, I met I met Castro at Burning Man, and I still think Burning Man is the best example I know of in the world of a sort of networked social engagement experience, where you, where it sort of started to scale, where a lot of people. Are a sort of practice of participation in person with each other. Yeah, and it's a great. We've had Shlomo Rabinowitz on an earlier episode. We have I forget which episode that was. Andrew, where we talked about about the way he does his Burning Man organizing. But it's a great place to look for tumbling tips and understand if you're trying to build any system that's scaling and participatory about what makes that work and how you help make a culture like that. And for me, Occupy felt a lot close to it on the way. Anyway. Um, yeah. But I guess the hardest thing about doing that is trusting that it's it's an okay. So once you're used to that, at the idea that everyone's participating or that you're ex- expecting people to want to try stuff, um, that comes more easily. But the, if you're not used to that culture, it can feel odd to imagine would want to do anything. I mean, isn't the assumption mm-hmm. of business and marketing that we have now? I mean, you've done some marketing, Castro, that people have to be convinced to, to do something. They have to be persuaded that it's worthwhile. To, to, to take any action, you have to kind of con them into it? Yeah. Well, at first, we definitely had to. Yeah. I feel like for the Occupy people, um, I, w- I just watched the Gonzo, the Hunter S. Thompson documentary, and it feels right now really similar, especially with the recent violence. It feels a lot like the circumstances surrounding him when he began writing. And, and I've, I'm kind of looking right now to the people who are there and the artists and the writers to see what they create out of this, out of this movement and sort of to not necessarily give it a voice, but to begin to like tell stories in a mainstream way. And I, I, you know, I'm reading this first um, Rolling Stone article, Rolling Stone art magazine article by Matt Tiabi. Um, it's mm. starting to come out and um, it's, it's exciting. I'm excited to be alive right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, it does feel like something's really going to happen. I mean, when you, Kestra, when you are on stage performing or in a live environment like Burning Man where you're trying to make something happen with people or in the RVIP lounge, do you have a sense of, like, when there's a possible moment to really motivate people to to come to, to like move forward when you kind of feel that out in, in the space. Yeah. And if you do, how do you do that? Um, what, well, what are you noticing? It's, it's, it's a delicate balance between terror and divine inspiration. 
a lot of the times managing the event, the RVIP lounge is definitely like, you know, there's a lot of stress. There are a lot of elements. There's a lot of important safety concerns to take in, into consideration. And, you know, we're most interested in having like a really profound sense of life changing, legitimate fun. And for us, we like to wrangle self-reliant drunks uh, who are wildly entertaining and give them safe rides while singing Les Miserables soundtrack songs. But, you know, you have to, like, make sure that the door is safe. You have to make sure that everyone actually is, you know, cognizant and safe, that every like you can't allow anyone that is not safe into the space in order for it to work. And there is a level of sort of management. Um, but when... When it's good and when, you know, a lot of it can just be a song choice, for example, like, you know, an example that hasn't happened yet, I would imagine, would be driving up to driving the RV up to the Occupy Wall Occupy movement and say, play Do You Hear the People Sing, an anthem about, you know, people uniting from Les Mis, although it's slightly, you know, that story played out a little darker than we want this one to, but... Um, <laughs> When it really happens, it is like a sort of yes. divine inspiration that, and everyone, you sort of look around the room and everyone makes eye contact and there's this sort of blissed, like, acknowledgement. And people tend to move together pretty, pretty fast and pretty furiously in a, in a, in a great way. Like at Burning Man, I've, and in all interactive event experiences, I feel like there is sort of an intuitive feeling that unites people, and you can sort of gesture, and people pick up on the idea that you're initiating. And um, when it's the right when it's the right combination, it's it's the best thing ever. And for you, I mean, for me, it's been such a powerful thing performatively that it's made other kinds of performance not as interesting. I don't know if that's happened. If you do lots of kinds of oh, yeah. acting and performing, yeah, but there's like something I hate going to bands now. I hate seeing bands <laughs> unless they're really good. Unless they're coming from a place where they're like at the temple, and you can like see the alien like starship light like injecting into their head and coming out through their eyes and mouth and hands and music. Unless it's that level. I am so out of there. Like I would so much, I, I've left so many shows just cause I was so bored. I was like, I get more transportive experience watching someone sing a really committed karaoke song with the people singing along and like almost like church. It's, it's more like church almost cause it's so interactive as opposed to like, okay, let's watch some dude show off. Right. Right. No, because it's, it's who's it for. Right. And are they really in the moment? Or are they just there going, pay attention to me uh, as a kind of demand and that transportive experience? I like the way you put it with the alien light. It's just there's nothing, there's just nothing like it. And when it's wedded to the sense that you're making something actually happen for real, which is what to me is happening with Occupy. And I think you're right. If we saw actual creative, artistic, performative moments happen there, it could be really powerful. I mean, they happened in Act Up back in the day to some degree. I mean, Larry Kramer, who's a play, you know, a film playwright and a film film writer, um, started Act Up and used theatrical performance to make a lot of the points that really made that movement be effective. And there's something about that that's just so compelling. It's hard for anything to be second, and yet it feels like we're in a in an era. Like, occupies an amazing example of it, and so are most many internet businesses where. That's sort of the point is to get people as many of those moments as possible. Yeah. I don't know. That's how it looks like to me. And to me, that means that art has to change what it's been doing. 
I don't know. For me, that's true. But you, you're a classically trained cellist. You act on camera. I assume you act in theater, too, sometimes, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, all of those things. Um, one of the things that, that really changed it for me, like, as a classically trained musician, I got really, you know, you, you're in this place of always striving for perfection, and when you do it wrong, there's a right and there's a wrong. And, you know, if you're playing a fretless instrument and you're trying to master a piece that was written by, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Baccarini or something hundreds of years ago, you know, people didn't have TV or other distractions. They had the time to put in to really master it. And there's definitely like a right and a wrong and the wrong hurts so much. You know, it, it takes a lot of time and work. And I got into and I think a lot I know that a lot of classical musicians share this like kind of an abusive relationship with myself where I was like a a battered wife to my cello in, in some ways. And, um, I, it was, it, it got, it got to be unfun. Like the, I forgot about the music and the love and the, the, you know, the storytelling through the melodies that really attracted me to the instrument in the first place. And, um, it really took taking it out of the classical realm and plugging in, doing electric cello and singing and playing cello at the same time. And, getting on a stage and having that interaction with the audience that really brought me back to, to music and into rock and roll in a way that um, like is irresistible and like religious. For me, it's like, it's the religious moment. <laughs> no, I, I connected love, to the audience like that. I love that you said, cause for me, it's absolutely what it is. And the performance art pieces I saw yesterday, which were in a bathhouse, it's usually a swingers club in Toronto. And it's a, it was a queer, performance nice. collective there were five performers in it um one did a piece very involved in the pool there's about 200 people around this pool and it was cold outside and there's sort of gregorian chanting from from a choir with her following her down a staircase and then she did a lot of this stuff in a robe in the pool and then there was a piece the piece by heather kessels and heather's body is i mean all of them lose their bodies in their pieces i mean dominic i forget his last name had a piece well, let's with describe her body his, his, if someone hasn't seen that video she's, yeah, she's I, will, I will i just wanted to i wanted to get some very very sense of like this collective group of experiences I think you've fallen off again, Heather. It sounds like through fish hooks in. Oh, it sounds like she's talking about something cool from outer space. (laughs) 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 Maybe we should call her back. I think Andrew will bring her back in. Um, Come back to us, Heather. But was it, we had um, Zoe Keating come and speak to us on the on here before. I don't know if you've, you've run into her, who's another classically changed cellist, classically She's trained awesome. cellist. Um, but she had the same thing of going to the live performance staff with the live looping and that sense of if I make a mistake, the mistake has to become part of the performance because I'm going to hear it 16 times repeated as the loop comes back. Um, and it's that same sense of... You know the the danger of you're not quite sure what to expect, but the, you expect there'll be something interesting there, which is the, the opposite of the classical repertoire where it's um, very much predefined a hundred years ago. But that's actually yeah. in opposition to the way it was done at the time, because there was always space for improvisation within, well, at least the Baroque and certainly maybe not quite the classical romantic period, but there was a presumption that there was a core tune there and then you would improvise variations on that for, for each performance. And yeah. that sort of got trained out of the, the, um, the classical musicians when they went to orchestras. Yeah, 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 exactly. We sort of browbeat ourselves out of our creativity and 
you know, this, you know, the next generation is bringing their own version of that. It would be nice to do an improvisational Baroque symphony, but <laughs> regardless, you have to have the technique underneath. Like if it's fretless yes. and you can't hear it's, there's a lot of challenges. I admire Zoe Keating so much for her use of, you know, loop pedals and stuff live because I'm still kind of terrified of like, well, what if I F up the first, the very first loop? The world right. would end. That's what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> I would die. Well, no, that's what she says. You know, she, she'll do that. She'll go, oh, I, okay, that means I've got to go this way with that now. <laughs> and yeah. That's, and, and that, the sort of the tension of that is, is part of what, you know, she has the recordings as well where she, she will play the same phrase 20 times so she gets it perfect. But, but the live performance is very much a part of, oh, this is going this way now. And it's, it's like you were saying with the, I mean, I think the way it works with the, the RVIP is is more that someone will stand up and give a performance and someone else go, oh, that reminds me of, and then they'll jump up and do their thing. And, and yeah, it's, it's sort more of, a stream of consciousness, yeah. This is like my mutual storytelling, yeah. Yeah, the thing that is really exciting to me, like one of the favorite things that I see on the RVIP is when, you know, someone has heard about it through like Twitter or whatever, and um, it'll usually, sometimes it'll be sort of like borderline Asperger-y, like kind of awkward, quiet, <laughs> computer engineer of some sort, like software engineer, like back-end developer or something. Sounds like me, yeah. Yeah, and they'll get in and sort of just sort of look around and it'll be, you know, a little bit of social anxiety and then they'll, you know, request a song and be ready to go and then that person will do the most them, like, committed performance on karaoke that I've ever seen. Like, this guy did Poker Face and he did it in a high-pitched, like, falsetto and it was like karaoke is a commitment game and seeing someone just fully commit just even right. if it's just for two minutes in time is really like the ultimate like mastery of life. I think like when someone commits fully in, in one moment and gives it everything and we get to see so many people just really go for it so hard. And it, that is what it makes it so fun. It, it's weird that I've, find like religious experiences regularly in karaoke and when people are doing it it in that way everyone else begins to support them and join them and sing along and it it really is like what church originally was supposed to be i think like the singing a group there's something that just makes you feel more deeply profoundly like positive and connected than anything other i don't know it's great well but it's partly partly because (laughs) You all know the same words and you know the same, you know, the, 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 the sort of classic church music was church music because that was the place where you perform music in public and where you actually got to sing together. Um, and that was the refrain and the repetition and, and the sort of the reason you had this sort of group experience. But now we have music permeating everything we do, but there are these songs that, that suddenly strike a chord. And, and you, you know, if you play songs from, you know, the period when I was listening to the charts all the time in the mid-'80s in the UK, I will suddenly realise that I know every word to that song um, 20 years later because it was, it was part of that experience and it will draw me back into that again. And, yeah. and I think what you do with the, um, with the karaoke thing is you're sort of um, playing chords on the people's memories. You're saying, remember this thing? And, you, and, and somebody starts a song and suddenly six people stand up and join in and sing along because that strikes that cultural resonance, that sort of yeah. transcendent experience. You can't experience. not do it. It's like people, it's almost like a weird compulsion to sing along. Right. It's weird how 
you know, people are pretty scared about doing that in normal day-to-day life. But when you get them in the right place at the right time with the right song, there's no shutting them up. Um, well, I could, I don't know if I, I thought I would mention sort of like how we started it because I thought it was kind of a fun story. I, you might know, do you know the story of how we started doing the RVI? Tell me, I'd love to hear. Okay. Um, my husband, Jonathan, my now husband was doing a company party at South by Southwest and they were so small. They didn't have enough money to like, you know, just a hotel room for the week is a thousand dollars. So, you know, just a part, so a party on top of that, you know, we're looking at like $10,000 down or whatever without really that much else. And so we realized that we could just rent an RV and sleep in it and then throw parties in it as well. And then drive to all the cool parties and steal all the awesome people. Hi, Heather. Have you guys been talking this whole time? I hope we've been totally talking. We've been talking hard. Like, I'm sorry. I haven't been able to be there. I want to interrupt have to say something we forgot to say at the top of the show, which is we need to thank our sponsor, <laughs> Hover, uh, for supporting the show. If you like Tumblevision, and a lot of you do, I had random people, Burning Man, come up and thank me for the show. Please support our sponsor, who was awesome because you all use domains. I have millions of domains recorded, and uh, they're a way better domain hoster than GoDaddy, and they make less sexist fucking ads, too. So... I don't not support the views. Uh, if you want a, a discount, we'll give you a discount. Use Tummel, T-U-M-M-E-L, and you'll get a discount off of your hosting, and you can call them up, and they'll transfer all your stuff. So thanks to Hover, and back to whatever religious intense uh, <laughs> amazing Castro was experiencing with all of you. Oh, you know, I was telling, I was telling the Genesis story of Ooh, the RV, okay. uh, and I got to the point where we were we, – <laughs> The company didn't have enough money to, like, get a hotel room, let alone sponsor a big fancy party in a venue for tens of thousands of dollars. What so was we this? Just... I don't know what the company was for. I it mean, was no. Ruby Red Labs. It was from Ruby Red Labs? Yeah, a long I time ago. I know it was Ruby Red Labs. It was Ruby I mean... Red Labs and Dippity. It was our their first. And Dippity Derek? Was... It was Derek and Thor? Derek? It was Derek and Jonathan. It was right after Get Satisfaction was made. And Jonathan was running Ruby Red, and he and Derek were like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? And we were like, let's do this. <laughs> Who, and so we drove around. Yeah. We, well, it originally, the original original was um, a New Year's Eve. We didn't want to caravan. We, we live in Los Angeles, and so it was, it's a hairy night for out, like drunks on the street, and there were like several groups of like eight or like 12 people. And we didn't want to have to find parking and then, you know, risk, like, there's just too much. So we just rented the RV, and then our, we just really liked karaoke, so we just threw karaoke into it. And then we ended up spending more time in the RV than at any of the parties. <laughs> so we just replicated it's like, that. It's like when you go to the party and you end up in the kitchen, you just take the kitchen with you. Yeah, yes. we, and then we took the kitchen out of the party and put it in the RV. Like, people left their own parties to sing and then that was when we were like well maybe we could just do that again because cruise like the the rv places were like still on our mind you know because it was from new year's to march so we did that and then here's the here's the the totally not at all humble brag um (laughs) where um we thought that twitter that year had launched and we thought that twitter was a mass text message product so we were like text 40404 and say follow our VIP lounge and you'll get text messages of when we're outside a party and you can yeah, meet I it. was following you guys from the beginning before I'd ever before I ever saw the thing. I wasn't even in the same town as it and I was following it. Oh that's awesome. 
That is awesome. Well, so, yeah. again, from when I was still texting 40404, like that's how long ago I was doing yeah. it. So we didn't know that Twitter was going to turn into what it did, but that was just like Jonathan's idea on New Year's Eve. I think it was 2000, it was like 2007. Or 2000, yeah, 2007. Yeah. And so that was the first time we did it. And then we did it at South by uh, March uh, right. of 2007. And then our friend, um, Mike Prasad, who created and branded Koji Barbecue, the first mobile, like Twitter based, location based um, food truck, he came to that party and he was like, you know what? And then he made Koji. So we are a integral part of the uh, location based food truck culture. And I would be, I don't know if we were the first, but I'll let you say that. Which has been a part <laughs> of a sort of growth of local um, food stuff. I mean, a lot of people who talk about a return to local making and local markets uh, making the economy work again talk a lot about local food stuff. Because like, if you go to Portland where people like to say there are never any jobs, but there's like a new food truck every three minutes that you're there. So there's that's sort of reflective of this sort of, networking entrepreneurial culture that's happening a lot, uh, in a lot of places in very small ways that show not, in a, not you know, although RVP is probably one of the coolest ways in which it's happening. It doesn't look as big as a Google, uh, yeah. but right. But, but that's kind of how the growth is going to work in the economy. If we're going to have one, people will be like, Oh, I can fix bicycles again. And I can fix your sink. And I made, you know, a cupcake you know, a uh, van and we, you know, pick you up in RV while you sing. I mean, yeah. so it makes sense, sense to me. Uh, it, and I, I think there's something about it being mobile. That's really part of the fluidity of, of stuff working this way that feels less like when it's not as destination oriented, that it can be more fluid, that it can change and that you're less like sit here and do this now. Yeah. Well, and we're like stand up and you sing now. Like we, we sort of demand interaction. And when you were asking earlier, like, how did you get, you know, you had to hustle to get people to do something to engage with this project originally. Cause people were intimidated. It looked like a weird, you know, without, if there were, if there was not a woman standing by the door, encouraging people to walk into the darkly lit, you know, <laughs> RV, you know, use your imagination as how people could have viewed it. If there were anyone, but like a girl there. So it was, a, and, and as the girl who was the one doing the hustle, it was a lot of work to just make yeah. me feel safe. You're also like, not the average girl, Castron. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let let's just let's talk about Castron since we were, okay, we didn't get to describe Heather Castle's body when I was explaining the performance piece, which I'll go back to in a minute. It's part of what I, I did this week. Castron is also somewhat from outer space in the best possible way. Um, has an really, I have a feeling, I haven't been with you other than a Burning Man, but I have a feeling that your like Burning Man um, performance of self and what you wear is not really different than most of your <laughs> daily life. I'm just going to go with believing that. Is that, a safe, is that a safe belief? I would say that's totally safe. Right. So, so Kestrin has an incredibly theatrical sense of style. A very sexy sense of style is gorgeous. It doesn't hurt. But, I mean, you know, it's not just about, like, face. It's, it's presence, really. A performative presence almost all the time. Uh, and I don't know if you were like that before you started doing Burning Man and, um, and, uh, and RVIP, but there's something to me also, cause I do, cause I do interactive live performative stuff. There's something about 
wanting this is why I want to do I do want to talk about performance art about going out with people in real situations and helping take them up to another level uh, if you yeah. already experience that kind of space performatively and you kind of yourself experience yourself in the way that people you know see themselves on stage usually only that way you give off a different kind of energy to people you already transform the place a little bit into oh something isn't usual this is different there's a <laughs> version of what it could be because you are already walking around i don't know with skulls all over you and glitter and your face is <laughs> your hair's in four directions and you're making pronouncements and there's someone following you around right like that's sort of what it's like around you and you're, you know, and you would and could break into song at any minute, which is part of how we connected. Cause I was like, great. Someone who wants to be the way I like to be. Excellent. Yeah. I demanded <laughs> it of you. Actually. I was like, sing harmonies, bitch go. And then we sing Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> yeah. I was like, great. That's how I like to live. Right. The fuck on. Although my, my harmonies, like I'm just learning how to, I could sing, but I'm just learning how to sing harmony. But it was like, it doesn't matter. Fucking learn. Doesn't matter. I'm going to learn. It's like drive stick. This how I learned how to drive stick. Everyone was drunk except me. Guess you'll be driving stick because that's the car you have. There's something about a performative world and 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 tumbling, where I think that those moments help push things. Like you don't have room for a, like you said, you couldn't afford a hotel room or whatever you need to do for the parties you made in RV. Like there's a way in which you're like there's a thing in the moment. We got to solve the problem but we're going to do it a fun way and you kind of have to be up to the task. There's not really a lot of choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, we evolved a lot over time as well. So, you know, the hustle ended up being like people chasing us down in taxi cabs, which is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing. And we're expanding and we're, we're growing into a fleet and figuring out different ways. I mean, we ultimately want to tackle, you know, completely different issues through the like power of fun and karaoke. Um, but one thing that was really unexpected was our friend, Scott Watson, who sort of partnered with us we call him the CTO, but it's unclear what those actually stand for the, the letters. Um, he is a Disney Imagineer. If you look at his resume, it's like Disney 25 years. Yeah. Um, you, he told me if you go on that flying thing at Epcot, he did that one. Yeah, he made um, uh, California Soren. Yeah, uh, which which I would say is the only somewhat cool recent ride there in that that transportive moment you were talking about performatively. Mm. There's a little bit of that in there. And for me, the thing that made Disney World so great, the things that were originally great, and the Peter Pan ride still has it, is that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's sort of what you're made, going for. Uh, yeah, exactly. That like joy in your heart and just it just takes you there and you take your There's a bit there. of surprise. You feel like you've gone somewhere else. You feel like all of a sudden the rules have yes. changed. You can do something else. And this happens in Occupy. This happens in startups too. This happens when people start using Airbnb or and those things become normative. But when you first use them, there's a sense of I can do this. I don't know. I can say someone's of course, I'm going to say love someone's living room. It's sort of this moment of, oh, my God, I can, like, it's I can, very transportive. Yeah, I can step through a door on the street and suddenly I'm in, in this place that, is, that then drives away and appears somewhere else. It's like, wait, what? Oh. Right. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all share, like, a common sense of awe and wonder and joy. And we all really like to sing karaoke. That helps. Um, Hell, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's been great because Scott is really, you know, he has, he has amazing ideas. I also want to mention that he did the Indiana Jones ride, the best ride ever at Disneyland. Mm, I've never go. been. I'll have to check it out. It's so good. Um, Disneyland? 
In California? In Disneyland. No, it's actual Disneyland. It's awesome. It's next to the Jungle Cruise in Adventureland. But Seriously? He's just, yeah. But in, in addition to him just being like a, a beautiful, just wonderful, loving human being and one of our closest friends, he also is really good. He has really great ideas and he's good at initiating projects and getting them executed. And so we've sort of used the RV as sort of a testing ground for ideas and we built an interactive LED grid on the outside of the RV using open source um, software, and Scott coded a, an interactive uh, iPad app. So whenever you paint uh, your finger on the iPad, it appears in lights on the outside of the RV. So you're basically drawing on the RV with your finger in light. Oh, that is, first of all, fucking cool. Second of all, I've been to, in the last few months, four or five major, like, interactive art events. I haven't seen mm. anything as cool as that. Really? Mm-mm. Awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful. It just sort of, like, it, it personalizes the entire vehicle, and you can kind of make it your own and decide what color. You can go all orange if you want. And it's super magical. So, and it, we've, we've sort of grown a lot with the hacker community and, and a lot of the software people and the people who are doing Arduino lights, you know, nice. um, we can program anything in there and we've made a lot of friends as a result of it. And I'm excited to see what other ideas, you know, what the next project's going to be and how, you know, how, what kind of impact that could have in the world that may be completely unanticipated and not even related to karaoke, but I, I would, I would still show up and sing karaoke. So, so there was a, an article in Wired this week, um, talking interviewing jack from twitter um and he was saying the goal is to make serendipity our business model to make the idea that you have you find this unexpected thing and are delighted by it that's that's the reason you come back to this place and i think that's that's something you've you've definitely got down there oh that's well well put yeah and it's also isn't that insightful of jack to see that because that is one of the things that makes Twitter so different than Facebook and really mm. any other social platform I've seen. There is a sense of being surprised and tr- potentially transported by moments. And you can feel the emergence between a, a people in a moment sometimes on Twitter the way you might feel those starlings come together. If you saw that murmuration video that went around. It's, that a, it's a sort of beautiful, inspiring feeling of, oh, my God, all these people are here together. And... Um, it's very hard to get that in an environment, say, like Facebook, which is premised on you knowing everyone. It's premised on you having a kind of control, and so it's structured around not knownness. It's not structured around uh, something that allows engagement between people in a way that feels delightful. Now, it, I still think it takes people who are like tumblers, like you, Kestrin, to get someone into the RV, to get people in to stay with streams on Twitter, to, to come into the conversation, because you need to be made to feel like it's okay and welcome to start to then get that mass connection of people, and then you start to feel that energy of everyone doing it together, and you kind of can't wait to do it. But you've got to, it takes people like who are tumblers, really, to, to build that up at the beginning. I, it's our premise and I don't know, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, Kestrin. That's a uniquely human skill set that the machines don't really do that very well. Yeah, it's it's curating your, your community that sort of launches the the project. So with Twitter, you know, they, they found they found us, right? They they launched Twitter at Jonathan's up, like upstairs at Jonathan's office at Ruby Red Labs in San Francisco. You know, they had a very soft, like, oh, we made this sort of thing, and they got people like Jonathan and as a result, all the people that Jonathan knows to really kick it off. And that was a really solid group of people who, you know, were sort of generate safety and fun in the world by nature. 
And I find that that's, you know, a big part of running the RVIP lounge is cultivating that community. That's what makes it special. If it were just me and Jonathan singing alone in an RV, like, it wouldn't be any fun. That's not well, true. It, it's you really say you fun. generate safety and fun and a desire for inclusion. Those yeah. things are all matter. Yeah, like a like a sense of wonder and welcome. Definitely, definitely. We like to surprise people. Like we we get the kick out of building this community and kind of always have is by blowing total strangers' minds. That's right. kind of our goal. That's why you need someone new. <laughs> so you have a mind to blow. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, we have fun just alone by ourselves doing it but it's not really the point the point is to like really be an act of spontaneity out in the world that can transform people's lives and then being like that was the best night of my life that's our goal hmm. yeah i think there's 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 a lot to that it's fun to delight somebody it's really fun so do you think that occupy wall street is delighting people in any way from from Raviv, I mean, from Raviv and a lot of, you know, especially people that you know from our Burning Man camp, it seems like they're really powerfully moved by something in the community that's happening there. And it, it, it rubs off on me and it makes me feel it. I mean, having never actually been, I cried for the last two mornings reading the news. I was so upset about what was happening. So I feel like I've been emotionally impacted in a powerful way. But I don't know what it's like there. Right. I went down to Occupy Wall Street in New York for a day when I was in New York. Um, there's The powerful thing is seeing people really talk to each other again. You know? I yeah. mean, I, I guess, like, like, not just the way I guess we might as people are relatively free. People who might not usually just stop and talk to someone they don't know about something really important randomly standing on the sidewalk because they're just standing there with a piece of cardboard that says 400 things they believe yeah um so when you perform now has this changed how you perform on stage and when you are doing live performance on stage or on camera what are the things that you do in those places that you feel help you create these moments of delight or fun with other people one example would be when, um, like, the first song I ever wrote was, like, a whiskey, like, a hoot and holler and sing-along kind of song. <laughs> and so I, I asked the audience to, to sing along, and um, then they, did, they didn't do it good. They just sucked at it. So I was like, all right, shut up. Do it good. Like, stop fucking sucking and sing good. All right. <laughs> and then, like, led them again. And I wasn't just joking. I was really serious about it, and I demanded their engagement. <laughs> Um, and I think that the RVIP has helped me sort of be more demanding of other people. Um, like, I'll, uh, we, I, there's sort of like a saying in my social group that is like, we'll give you anything for free as long as you bring it. And um, <laughs> that's sort of the essence. So, yeah, and, and, and really, like, when I'm, when I'm playing cello on stage or singing or if I'm doing a play, it's different if you're doing a play because you have to be really in deep contact with the performer that you're working with on stage. But, you know, it, that's the same for music, too. I, like, I want to, like, go into their brain holes and, like, be transported by our connection. And when we get to that point, that's when the audience really responds. And, mm. then, and then once you've got that solid foundation that you're listening to each other, 
then you can look out and sort of do the same thing with the audience. And it's amazing. It, and it happens in music. And, you know, the most exciting thing about acting is really just just disappearing because you're so in contact with the other person. And it's just it's like a miracle. It's communion, isn't it? It's sort of yeah. ritualized communion. Yeah. So, so I, the, the performance pieces I saw yesterday, including I'll explain um, Heather Callis's and Heather Heather's body looks like a man's body. In fact, I thought Heather was male to female because <laughs> her body mm-hmm. is so what we think of as masculine or chest for sure. And that is an, it's a personal trainer and is ridiculously and does a lot of her work. She's a visual artist by training is about manipulating her body consciously through diet and exercise to look a certain way. And then she uses that in her pieces pieces. And this one, she stands and she, the idea is it becomes sort of living sculpture. There's an ice block of a male, uh, chest, muscular chest in front of her that she's pressed up against, naked. She's a very delicate feminine presence and face. Um, and and the piece is based on Teresius, the blind seer who switched, whose gender would fluctuate. So she's very much about resisting bi- the binary in a large way um, and has a very strong presence. I'd say more than the rest of the performers I saw. Uh, and and is, is the, the piece of famousness we referred to earlier is in the telephone video, the one who goes over to Gaga and you know, grabs her and kisses her. That's Heather. Um, which she wasn't asked to do, by the way. I just read she's a really interesting interview in App Magazine. She decided to do the kiss on her own. Um, now, the thing about performance art that is usually tiring to people who don't like it or care about it is like, <laughs> why is that person standing there against a block of ice? Why are they standing there moving their neck slowly? What's the point of this? There's, I think, a real desire among people who do performance in public to have this kind of communion moment, to have a moment of being in public where you're so deeply connected to yourself or what you're doing. Um, and I just heard them all talk about not playing to the audience the way maybe you or I might think about that being on stage in a more entertainment-like way, but really... Um, really being so committed to the moment or the thing that you're doing that you help transform an experience for people. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that that transport of moment is what they're after. Maybe because it, you think it's weird or it, it catches you by surprise, which, which isn't an easy thing to do <laughs> in a world where you can access in the West anyway, the amount of things we can. But I think that's a common theme, at least what excites me in, in all creative work and when I hear people talk about businesses, uh, they seem to talk the same way to delight people when they're really great. Or the surprise thing you were saying, Kevin, that Jack's going for a serendipity business model. I don't know that the, the traditional nonprofit world has ever gone there or government has gone there. Um, but the surprise and that transportive thing seems to be part of what makes networked experiences really ripple when people are looking to, quote, unquote, go viral or build community. That's, those are the sparks you're talking about, Kester, that help make that happen. And often people want to know, how, how do I get a community? Like, why does that happen? I think it's just, like, do what you actually want to be doing. Like, we're not doing the RV. We never, like, originally we did it because it suited a need, the like carpooling, like no drunk driving. We love singing. So we got to sing and we wanted to be with our friends and not be separated. And we also wanted to go visit a bunch of places that were awesome. So we just made something that we super, super wanted and we weren't trying to make money or sell it. We just did it because we loved it. And I feel like that's how all great work and all great community is sort of spawned is it's, it's like, would you buy this? 
yeah, you can sell it all you want, but do you actually want it? Um, that's how I feel the good magic happens. That's really powerful thing. Kevin, do you think that works for businesses or technologies? Um, I think it, I think it can do that, but the, the problem is that they tend to lose that over time. Um, because you know, a lot of companies start out with the idea of, of changing everything and then gradually they accrete more people and lose a lot of the, the sort of the transformative vision, if you like, the, 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 the difficulty is always getting that to work at a larger scale. Yeah. That's a huge challenge. And, you know, it's easy to do when you're like one room, you're a company in one room or you're just, you know, in a small play or if you're in a small movie, but the more people, you know, you have to answer to, if you have to answer to a network or a studio or a board of investors. Yeah. But think about how it's worked for, how it has worked for Burning Man. What they did was they created a platform that says, we have a way of doing stuff that's going to support you doing the thing you super want right. to do and what we're doing is yes. encouraging you to get in touch with that super wanting now the, it sounds like a, a simple thing but i kind of want to talk about a little bit maybe for a little bit rest of our time because i think it's i think it's what's antithetical to the kind of money business capitalist whatever you want to call it and care about what you call it short-term culture we've lived in which is don't trust what you want trust what you think everybody else needs Come up with something practical. Ignore your needs. Those things aren't part of the real world. I mean, that's a lot of what the de facto conventional wisdom is that a lot of people are raised with. Oh, the economy's bad now. Now you should really not do what you want. You should only do what's practical. And yet I think the stuff that has that magic, like you're talking about, Kestrin, comes from just absolutely only wanting to do it. Which is another result of having nothing. I mean, when you have nothing, you can go to fear and say, oh, my God, what am I going to do based on what everyone else needs? Or you can go to, like, what is the only thing I actually like doing? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, think that's, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to feel allowed to do or to trust that that can turn into anything. Well, it's terrifying. Because, A, what mm. if you suck at it? <laughs> yes. And you lose all your money? Like, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's scary, but... You know, I think, like, if the economy ultimately fails and you made, you know, I mean, I'm not, like, speaking from a doomsday perspective, but, like, look at what's happening to our economy. The stock market fluctuated 125 points today. It didn't do that 20 years ago. You know, like, ultimately, all you're going to have is you and maybe a little bit of stuff and, and the people that you're around. So you might as well be doing what you love. character version of what we have in life <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the other thing is is the 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 value of the net and of these sort of platforms is that you can find the other people who care about that same thing that you care about um, and have that conversation with them that's the reason that the reason that twitter keeps providing delight is that you've picked a bunch of people who are kind of interesting that will send you things that that interest you and then and then they will retweet other people and suddenly you get connected to these people through that or um, the other great example is Kickstarter, which is like, mm. okay, you have a crazy idea. We'll help you get the money together to actually make it happen and help you find people who will give you the money to do that. And that's, that's you know, for me, those kind of ideas of how do we harness this mass visibility to find the, the other set of people who, who care about this weird thing that you care about is, is, is really important. And that's the, you know, that's it, it, the value the net brings to this, I think. Yeah. 
Oh, I love um, by the so way, much. we're getting a little a little participation here. Jonathan says that totally happened in Occupy LA when I was saying the thing about um sharing the thing on on Twitter about going up and playing the right song, having the right song choice. He said at Occupy LA, we sing "Money Killing in the Name of" and never going to give you up. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that <laughs> happened. Ah, awesome. <laughs> So uh, it's our, I had no idea Jonathan was paying attention to anything that I was doing. Oh, it's tweeting. hi, Jonathan. Hi. Oh, Jasper um, says hi. Yeah, another, yeah. I just want to say for the record that Twitter has pretty much repla- like changed the way that I start and live my days. Instead of watching the news, like when I was a kid, we'd watch McNeil Lear News Hour. I sit in bed and I read Twitter and I get the news so much faster than anything else. And nobody ever talks about that. it's changed it's fundamentally changed things duh but i love getting news on twitter well we all have very few minutes i'll just say part i love twitter as well which is why i think it's worth (laughs) mentioning that um there was a house judiciary committee meeting yesterday around a bill called uh SOPA or PIPA has a lot of short forms. It's ostensibly to stop internet piracy, but if this bill passes, it would make Twitter pretty impossible, among other things, because it it means that if you have any system where people are sharing links that could be to infringing content, that that the site would be liable unless it pre-screened all of them and made sure there was never any willful links to, to... So I was part of a small disruptive group of internet coalitions, including Derek, who did Dippity, we talked about earlier. We went to D.C. to lobby. We'd, we'd never been to D.C. before. It was like Fred Wilson and you know a few, a few venture capitalists, a few startup people, and uh, myself and Paige Hayes, who was a guest here a few episodes. Come back. Come back. I know this bill, and on be- and, and I know that Once a lot ago, of So people- we were two artists, and I... Uh, what I found You'll... odd is they really wanted to talk to the two of us who are artists. I was shocked that they really had the most questions for us. And, in fact, one congressman asked me to write jokes for him for the hearing, which I did. <laughs> wow. Was, I, had that, I had that same experience with the Digital Economy Act in the UK, which was the equivalent noxious legislation they were doing a couple of years ago, where I wrote a huge blog post about this and, Twitter, and pinged some MPs about it, and he lifted the quotes I'd used to make his speech in the House, which was... Yeah, um, it was this sort of odd, like the same network that you're trying to destroy is the thing that's actually helping you support it. And the stuff that's been going on um, with Tumblr um, changing their page to tell everyone to go and lobby their their congressman and getting eighty six thousand people to do it, um, and demand progress and these others saying seriously the internet is at risk. Um, Call your call your Congress people and tell them this is a bad idea. I think that is having some impact. Seeing so some of the responses today, but the shocking thing to me was watching them because I watched some of the testimony. Oh, today I was using an app, PadMapper, and they put a. Go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. So, um, Rep. Lundgren asked the question. I've been told this bill will make um, DNS security um, vulnerable. Can any of you comment on that? Um, and all the all the people there said, no, I have no idea. Um, I don't understand what, what DNS is. It's like you're trying to pass a law that will destroy the DNS route and you haven't even bothered to talk to anyone who understands it, any of you. That was the, that was the shocking part of me. And it was actually impressive that the, the Congress people had been paying more attention than the supposed witnesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the people in our group was David Ulovich at David mm. U on Twitter who runs OpenDNS and knows a lot about DNS. Yes. 
In fact, the movie business got in touch with him and tried to get him to work for them on the bill. And he, of course, opposes it very vociferously. And we had a lot of meetings with people who they'd just be like, oh, well, here's the guy who could explain the whole DNS thing to you. And nobody understood the first thing. It was very clear. They were thrilled we were there, but it was very clear none of them understood the Internet and how it was put together at all, not even yeah. a little bit. And from that, it made clear to me they understand anything they're voting on. There's no way. They don't have time. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It's not possible. There's too much going on. And it, it was really kind of sitting in the middle of here's a hierarchical old structure trying to keep things the way it is. And here's people who are comfortable with network structures trying to find a way to work with it. But law doesn't, as you have, it doesn't work that way. And and very often the thing that's obvious, like you're saying, Kevin, doesn't didn't get talked about because they're so busy trying to strategize about the little they do know. There's not a lot of acknowledging what they don't know. I mean, I was like, what are we going to do with all the people under 30 who just want to stream movies and they can't except illegally and that's going to keep happening because there's no other way to do it? Like, how is this bill going to affect any of that? Like, Well, but the other thing is that the, the, the effects will be the opposite of what they expect, which is if they make the U.S. DNS route useless, people will start using other DNS routes instead, um, and they will have um, fragmented the one centralized piece of the Internet again, just as when they started attacking um, the, the, the centralized Napster, we got decentralized Grokster and, and, and BitTorrent. And the, the real way to battle these things is not to say, how do we shut these people down? It's like, how do we make them less relevant by providing a, a legitimate stream for the stuff, a legitimate way for people to find the things that they want and to um, pay the artists and say thank you, which is the, you know, the, the, the answer that actually works. And if you look at the, you know, if you look iTunes. at the amount of iTunes, um, the, the two this week were, were Google and Amazon launching similar things to, to um, connect artists to, to, to people with devices. Um, Google saying, okay, anyone can list their, their stuff on here and, and it will put it in the store so you can find it too. Um, that, I, and, and then, you know, again, Kickstarter, which I think is even stronger in that it's prospective. It's not just saying, I've made this thing, you can buy it. It's saying, I want to make this thing, will you help me make it? Which creates a much stronger bond between the individual and the artist. Um, I think those, those ideas and more ideas like them are the actual answers to this. And the sort of, you know, the dead hand of old media trying to shut down the internet is the, is, 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 um, the opposite of this. But the challenge is that the... You know, what one of the congressmen was saying, well, yes, I remember having this great experience listening to music on my 8-track in college. And it was like, if that's the most transcendent You're musical old. experience you've got, <laughs> if that's all you've got for us, you really should not be in this conversation. You know, yeah. or maybe, maybe Kestrin, you should take RVIP to Congress and, and, you know, give them your musical religious experience to understand this. Yeah, well, one thing I can do is take the RVIP to SAG, one of the unions, which I'm a member of, who supported this bill, and I'm really, really, really upset about it. Right. Uh, on, on behalf oh, I... Kestrin, I'm going to be coming through L.A., so I'll just let, let everybody know. I'm going to go back to San Francisco, and I'm going to start driving December 1st. So if anybody across the country wants to I mean, have I feel me. Like... Awesome. At, at Oklahoma or somewhere, but I'm going to come through L.A. I would love to go uh, karaoke the shit out of some of those places with you. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just awareness. Like, I've, I've kind of fallen to the side of as being, like, active and aware within the union. And then I see this in the news and I'm like, oh, man, I have to take responsibility for this. I have to take action today. Oops. Let's. All right. It's today. The thing let's that's really frustrating, Kestrin, 
is it was weird to be in these conversations with these Congress people and their staffs who are telling me, trying to tell me what artists want, that this bill is for artists, when I'm like, how many artists have come to talk to you? I'm probably the only one, me and Paige, because the MPAA says they represent artists, but I don't feel like they do. I mean, SAG obviously does, but they're not... But they're advocating to to support old film business models. I used to work for the film business. I love making films. But you, it's not going to help the film business to hold on to things that aren't helping it. It's not helping it make strong, more money. Yeah. If they were strong, they'd just get someone, like a really strong leader, to get all the studios in a room and like put a deal together similar to something like iTunes so that they can make money. Well, and I in fact they do it. Kestrin, I, in fact, in our meeting with the CTO of the country and Joe and Joe Biden's chief of staff asked exactly for that. I said, if you're going to do this other stuff in the bill, please, you have the innovation, you know, bully pulpit. You're the you're the president's office. Please make the movie business and all the studios sit down with everyone here so we can get deals so we can build some startups to make the money. And he was like, no, we can't do that. We can't do well, that. Yeah, I, I feel like there's got to be some sort of alpha figure somewhere that is that is coming up through this process that is going to make a lot of money and totally save old media and new media through just strong leadership. Or karaoke. And karaoke. <laughs> At this point, I have more faith in the karaoke because I think we lost Steve Jobs. Yeah. She was our alpha figure. I think it's an era... Of no leaders, snare of everybody getting in the RV and singing. Um, Kestrin, it, are we still? Are we, do you still have sound? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Am I here? You, you're you. coming in and out, Heather. Okay. I think, unfortunately, we probably should wrap this up because of that as much as I'm loving talking with you guys, I want to thank our sponsor again, Hover from Two Cows, a great domain host, and they'll transfer domains really easily. You can get to them through our site or just use Tummel as your code when you go to them. I want to thank Kevin for breaking into his office past the guards. And we're thinking of Deb, wherever she is asleep in Israel, and Kestrin, anytime. We would love to do, we should do a Tumble Vision event in the RVIP because it's the most tumbly thing you could do. Well, we're going to yes. be at South by Southwest, so anyone Great. who's listening can hop on. We are on. It's happening. And you can follow us there. at RVIP Lounge, twitter.com slash RVIP Lounge, RVIP Lounge. And if people are interested in the rest of your incredible work, where they can find out more about your performances and your music? Well, thanks for asking, Heather. You can go to hello.kestrin.com, and that's K-E-S-T-R-I-N.com. I'm excited to see you guys in L.A. I'm already feeling like I miss being in the karaoke. We karaoke without a lounge. We had like a little mini karaoke thing out in the desert. It was awesome, though. Yeah. The love is the most important ingredient. It is. It is. And the outfits. I'm going to work in the outfits, but the love. I totally have the love. <laughs> love so. and fashion. <laughs> Same thing. So, you guys, it's been great to talk to you. I hope we can, um, maybe if you can, Andrew, fit in some of Kestrin's music so people can hear her. You're the, you're the second electric cellist on the show and Tumblevision's had. We had Zoe Keating nice. early on. And she played live for us in the show, which was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So maybe another time you could you do that. And uh, wonderful to hear, hear you all. Thanks. We want to thank our producer, Andrew Hazlitt, producer for the New Modern out of Baltimore, his beloved Baltimore. And 
go help an occupy near you even if you don't want to go down in person and maybe do something you absolutely love there so it's a happy fun time because who wants we have enough misery we don't need to work on the misery <laughs> that's my idea for the week I will uh, and I'll be driving across the country soon so if anyone wants to host me on the way I'll come do a show with you or do an interview with you on the way alright everybody Good night. we'll see you here again next week bye night bye Thank you.